Welcome on The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And we have a lot to get into on tonight's show as we will take a closer look at the Orioles signing of Craig Kimbrell, as well as the quiet Rule 5 draft that took place last week in Nashville. But first, we got to start off with what has really been the dominant story in Birdland and one of the more dominant stories in Baltimore as a whole over the last week, which concerns the Orioles' impending lease expiration at the end of the year. Now, throughout much of this year, there has been questions about when the Orioles and the Maryland Stadium Authority in the state of Maryland would come to terms on a lease extension. There was a quote-unquote agreement announced during an Orioles-Red Sox game back in September, the night they clinched the division. That was not a final deal, though, which we found out very quickly afterwards. And in the months since then, we've been waiting to see when a deal will be finalized. Late last week, it looks like the team was close to an agreement with the state. However, an objection from Bill Ferguson, the Maryland Senate president, set that deal off course in part because just a few hours before that announcement, which took place on Friday, on Thursday, Bloomberg reported that David Rubenstein, the co-founder of Carlisle Group, was in talks to buy the Orioles. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, and we're going to get into some of the latest news as well, which came on Wednesday when Wes Moore, the Maryland governor of Maryland, expressed optimism that the state and the team will reach an agreement before the lease ends at the end of this year. And just looking at some of what he said on Wednesday, I'm quoting here from Pamela Wood at the Baltimore Banner. Moore said, quote, we've been working all throughout the weekend and in the week with all the partners, and we feel very confident the deal is imminent. And then when Moore was asked, when do you think that will be, he responded, imminent. Of course, we still don't have a final deal as of Wednesday night, but we have a lot to react to here. And Nick, I'll start with you. You were out last week. Welcome back to the show. Now, pick apart uh, this uh, situation for us. I I just got over COVID. I'd rather have COVID again. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I don't really have many thoughts about the lease, to be honest. Like, it's it's going to get done. The Orioles aren't going anywhere. I, I honestly think it's a nothing burger to be completely honest. I know some people are like, I'm not buying tickets until this is resolved. And it's a major issue. I just can't get worked up about this. To be honest, I haven't read anything about it until the stuff that you posted. I did watch Paul Mancano and uh, Andy Casca and their conversation that you had posted in the outline there. I did enjoy their conversation. Uh, Without having any details, obviously, it just kind of feels like Angelos wants Angelos wants to be able to do more around the stadium with the property around the stadium. Uh, and it seems like this politician guy, I don't know who the other guy was in the Senate. I, I'm not a Maryland resident, so I don't know anything about Maryland politics or anything like that. But it seems like this is his district, right, apparently. So I feel like maybe he's uh, doing just politician things uh, and he wants final say uh he doesn't want someone else coming in and taking over control and doing things that uh, he doesn't want done in his district i don't know i just think at the end of the day like it's it's a big nothing burger it's gonna get done i mean maybe there's there are bigger issues here but i i don't think major league baseball wants the orioles to leave um i don't see them leaving anytime soon the nashville jokes are so old and played out at this point just i just want actual baseball in the field to talk about at this point to be honest yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, the Orioles aren't going anywhere. I don't think John Angelos wants to move the team. I don't think it makes sense in any way, shape, or form. There's, you know, there's going to be expansion probably relatively shortly in Major League Baseball to 32 teams at some point. I don't see why they would move a team out of Baltimore with the, the storied history that we have here. Maybe not as much recently, but overall – there's i just it doesn't make sense so it's just a matter of time but it is annoying how it's like oh my god yeah it's finally going to be over with we can just put that in a rearview mirror and and move on with our lives and then the next day something comes out nope actually it's going to be blocked and then the next day i think we're going to resolve these issues and then the next day nope it's just not gonna ha it's just back and forth it's like can we just make a decision on this and and get over it like i was saying but as far as a uh, potential new owner, now that is something I could definitely get invested in and uh, get on board with uh, this David Ru Rubenstein. He he seems like uh, a good candidate. 
he's got a nice little net worth there, $4.6 billion or, or something like that, more than double what John Angelos was apparently worth just based off of what I saw. And you would think as a, a Maryland resident, I guess, and uh, grew up in the area himself, that he'd be invested in the team's success. Hopefully, if he does buy the team, um, he would just continue to let Michael Elias and company do their thing and just give them more money to play with. That would be the dream. So we'll see what happens. But it's it's never at all moment in Birdland. It's the offseason. We've only signed one pitcher, a reliever. And, uh, and yet, I feel like we've been in the news every other day. Yeah, let's give a little bit more background. Ruben seen the Baltimore native worth a reported $4.6 billion according to the Bloomberg's Billionaire Index. And then just to get a little bit deeper into some of the objections that are in play here from Maryland Senate President Bill Ferguson, he issued a statement on Friday, and I'm quoting from the Baltimore Sun, fundamentally, I believe that the long-term lease for the use of the ballpark should not be conditioned on whether or not a private owner receives a 99-year ground lease to develop land owned by Maryland taxpayers. Ferguson there is referring to the fact that the Orioles want to develop the area around Cannon Yards. There would be a 99-year ground lease to redevelop that land, which would be attached to, but not the same as the 30-year lease, as I'm understanding it right now. We'll have to see how things play out. And it has been a roller coaster, although I will say that I was in Candom Yards that night when they put it up on the video board that there was a 30-year deal. Um, I knew that that wasn't the case. I'll just say this. I knew that wasn't final because there is a process for these things to become final. They're very public. And putting up, we have a non-binding 30-year memorandum of understanding for a lease extension. Doesn't look great on a video board. Whether or not that should have been put up there, that's a debate that, yeah, kind of now is in the past. I'm sure that if they had to do some things over again, they might have handled it a little bit differently. But nonetheless, I would just say to fans, don't get discouraged. First of all, the Nashville speculation has been nothing but useless noise from the beginning. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I haven't really wanted to talk about on this show. And there has been some excellent reporting at the Baltimore Banner and the Baltimore Sun about this. But if you take the temperature on Orioles Twitter some days, the team's moving to Nashville for the fact that John Angelos and his wife have a house there. That's really it. So calm down that stuff a little bit. Calm down the rhetoric. It's not unusual for these things to go down the wire, whether it's in Baltimore or anywhere else. Just Google Colorado Rockies Coors Field lease extension, and you'll find some articles from 2017 where a very similar situation played out. So I'm not, don't panic at all about this. It is going to happen. It just is a roller coaster, roller coaster of emotions to get there. It is kind of annoying, though, to see that the Ravens recently came out with, here's what we're going to do with $500 million of the $600 million we're allotted to make improvements to our stadium, and here's exactly what we're going to do. Meanwhile, the Orioles are still fighting back and forth for these little things. And I, I guess, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, it just, it's not that interesting to me, like Nick was saying. I just, I don't care about the politicians and the billionaire owner doing little tit for tat to try to squeeze out every little piece of leverage they have or whatever in negotiations. But yeah, just let me know when it's officially done. <laughs> it's funny you said a 30 year memorandum of understanding doesn't have the same ring to it on the, on the big screen there, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'll be happy when this is over and I just hope there's reports of new ownership is true. Yeah. Just a little man trying to get whatever he can uh, save his legacy there before he does eventually sell the team. But talking about this owner and Ruben seen and possibly buying it. I also don't really care too much about these billionaires and the billionaire owners. Uh, I'd rather focus on the players on the field. These are the guys that earn it. I hate when it's like the owner gets the first one to raise the trophy. I get it. It's your team. It's it's your money. But at the same time, like you didn't win that championship. So, um, you know, Ruben's saying he's a billionaire. I'm sure he's got some skeletons in his closet and some not so great things. And But I do like Bob mentioned the fact that he does have the local ties. He's a local guy. So maybe that if if this were to go through, maybe that will you know quell some fears and be a positive. My only thought with this new ownership, though, if we want to talk about that for a second, are we a hundred percent sure that like the grass 
is greener on the other side, though. That's my only concern here. Just play. I, I want him gone. I, I want take your money. I don't even care that you're going to make over a billion dollars, whatever the Orioles are valued at, whatever the sale could end up being. Go get your money and go crawl in a hole, and hopefully we never have to hear from you again. Because it seems like whenever Angelo says anything, it's obvious like he says the wrong thing or the ignorant thing or just the asinine thing or just like nothing at all. And I would love for him to just take his money and crawl away. But like, you know, you could say, I just get the sense that a lot of people are like a new owner will instantly solve a lot of issues. And it's like, it could, I hope it does. I hope he's like, Hey, blank check. Here you go. Michael eyes, do whatever you want to do. Extend who you want, go sign who you want. But like, you know, you can say, Hey, we got a new owner let's lock up Adley and Gunner, but like Adley and Gunner have to want to sign an extension and stay in Baltimore and not test free agency. Um, you can dish out the big contracts. Free agents have to want to come to Baltimore first and foremost. And are we certain like a hundred percent certain that this is entirely Angelo's just not willing to spend money. And I, I kind of get the sense that like, I'm sure there is some hamstring in there, but I also kind of get the sense that this leadership team with under like Sig and, and Elias I think they kind of like this challenge that they can prove to the rest of the league that we can scout our guys, develop our guys and win with our guys, find the diamonds in the rough. That's how we're going to go out and win. Not just like going out trying to buy a championship or buy a title. Um, I, I don't know. I have no definite answers. I, don't, I have no idea, but it's just, it's just kind of thoughts that are going through my head as all this news starts to trickle out here and there. I've always thought that this regime even if given more payroll resources would not be free spenders. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that, and first of all, Michael Elias had been eyed for a while as a general manager, president of baseball operations, possibly of other teams. It wasn't like the Orioles were the only organization in MLB that had interest in Michael Elias. I think he knew what he was getting into when he came here. I think that his team knew what they were getting into and while I'm sure there are times that he would have liked to have had a little bit more in the way of resources, and please do not take any of this as a way of defending John Angelos, I also don't think if Michael Elias worked for Steve Cohen that he would be free spending uh, the way that they were before last season. I just don't, and that goes into another point I want to make, which is owners should not be evaluated solely on how much they spend. Steve Cohen spent has spent a lot of money in the last two years. It's gotten the Mets one playoff appearance, and that's it. Maybe eventually things are going to work. Artie Moreno has spent a lot of money over the years. He's signed some players to some big contracts, and I got to say, if you look at his track record over the last decade, he's been one of the worst owners in baseball. Uh, so that's not the sole value in an owner. And while there are things with the Orioles that could be better, I'm also not inclined to believe that, you know, it's a magic solution that someone buys the team. They're going to have the highest payroll in baseball and that's going to be it. Yeah. All that is 1000% fair. I think you nailed that. So I won't even like reiterate what you've already said, but it's, you know, we all want John Angelus gone. We want the Angelus family to not earn the Baltimore Orioles anymore. I think that's fair to say as, as Orioles fans, probably 99.9%. Um, but he did bring in Michael Elias. He did let him do his thing. Like, I don't think he said, hey, Michael Elias, I want this player. I want a high name veteran player, you know, to get these fans in the seats. No, he let Elias bring in the international stuff, build the the new establishment and uh, and the Dominican Republic Academy that I think should be done relatively soon. Um he look what we have now. And I'm not saying that John Angelus really did anything other than say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that part of it. You know, he's put his foot in his mouth every time he talks about something that he does have something to do with, but he did bring in Michael Elias and let him have control of the baseball stuff. And it has worked out brilliantly so far. And while I do think since Rubenstein is local and he probably, maybe his, you know, want to own the Orioles has a lot to do with what Michael Eisen company have done as he's paid attention uh, over the past few years. But who's to say, you know, a lot of times <laughs> new owner comes in. I don't want anything to do with what was already here. I want to do my own thing, put my own stamp on things. Would he shake things up as far as 
what we already have going good right now? Would he make changes there? I would probably guess no, but you just never know. We don't know the personality of him, even though I think he's got some kind of YouTube or TV thing. He's apparently got a somewhat public presence, but I don't know anything about him. Um, yeah, so a lot of unknown, at least with John Angelos, we know Michael Elias pretty much has free reign to do whatever he wants on the baseball side of things, and it's worked out brilliantly so far. So change something. Hopefully the, the baseball stuff stays the same at least. I was, I was going to say, he does get points for me, Rubenstein, that is, if this is the potential buyer, uh, because uh, shout out, Connor, I was listening to Locked On this morning, I was catching up on some episodes, and I think it was a couple of days ago when he talked about this, but uh, that's where I learned that apparently Rubenstein bought an original copy of the Magna Carta, and as a history nerd, <laughs> former history teacher, uh, you know what, just... If you're going to be the owner and you want to bring some of those historical documents and have like a nice little history section over here in Camden Yard somewhere, like I'm down and I I fully support this move. Just I just thought that was a cool fact. I don't know. I'm I'm a serious history nerd, so he's he seems good in my book, at least on the surface. We'll move on now to someone the field news as the Orioles agreed to terms with Craig Kimbrell at last week's winter meetings and with the signing of Kimbrell, which is a one year deal that includes a club option for the 2025 season. The Orioles have found their pitcher to replace Felix Bautista, who will be recovering from Tommy John surgery and will miss the entirety of the 2024 season. Kimbrell comes to the Orioles with a long track record that goes back to his rookie season with the Atlanta Braves in 2010. He currently has 417 career saves and has struck out 1,192 batters in 757 and a third innings pitch a former Rookie of the Year winner during his time at the Braves. He also won a World Series in 2018 with the Boston Red Sox. Now, you look more recently, and it has been a little bit of some ups and downs. In 2021, he had been excellent with the Cubs before being traded to the White Sox at the trade deadline where he really struggled. He rebounded with a solid season in 2022 with the Dodgers, and then was an all-star for the Phillies last year, putting together a good regular season. But then things melted down for him in the NLCS against the Arizona Diamondbacks as he had an ERA of 12 in four games while walking four batters in three innings pits. A couple of meltdowns there in that series as the Phillies fell to Arizona in the NLCS. So the last time we saw Craig Kimbrell on the mound, things didn't go very well, but there's no denying that he's got a good long track record, brings a veteran presence to this team and would seem to be at least on paper, a reasonable replacement. There's no replacing Felix Bautista, but a reasonable signee to replace Felix Bautista and fill the closers role in 2024. So Bob, I'll turn this over to you. What are your thoughts on this signing? I, thought it was solid i mean i think he he helps the orioles bullpen i i like that he's a, a veteran closer with experience he's kind of like the kyle gibson version of uh, veteran presence he's been around he's came up as a big time prospect i believe or at least you know f as far as a reliever goes uh had success early has been around a game and winning teams for a long time he's got playoff experience whether or not you know it's the best results of all time uh could be not even debated. He doesn't, but he's had some success in there as well with his failures. And I don't, yeah, I mean, I actually kind of like the fact that they're saying he's going to be the closer because I think, you know, the closer doesn't always have the highest leverage situations anyway. So yeah, let him have the ninth inning and hopefully DL Hall, Yanir Cano, Tyler Wells, whoever, some maybe potentially better or at least better suited guys for uh, tougher situations can can kind of, I don't know, stand out in that capacity. But I, I'd still like to see them go out and get another reliever, whether it's through a trade, a free agent, or even, you know, striking the waiver wire, uh, as we tend to do. Um, but I do like Kimbrell as a pitcher. He's going to be 36 years old, but still strikes out a ton of batters. I saw his stuff plus numbers were still excellent based on Eno Saris and some other stuff I saw Alex Fast retweeted some stuff plus numbers and they were all looking really good. He's a two pitch pitcher and seemed to be working for him. Home runs have been his issue for the most part. And now he's in Camden Yards, which apparently just eliminates all home run problems for any pitcher ever. 
So uh, should be better there. And yeah, I like the signing. It wasn't one where I was like super pumped up and excited about it, but I think it's just, uh, un, you know, I think it's going to be underappreciated when we look back after the 2024 season, the impact that he probably is going to have on the team. And I do like the option in case Felix Bautista isn't recovering correctly, or if he just has a fantastic season and you want to keep him around for another year at a reasonable cost, it's right there. And if not, you decline it. So yeah, uh, I'm a fan of the move. Yeah, I feel like it was not too long after that last playoff appearance or one of his playoff appearances. I don't know if it was a mailbag episode or we were just taking questions at the end, but one of our patrons I know asked our thoughts about potentially signing Craig Kimbrell in the offseason. And I'm pretty sure my answer was it, we just, we literally just watched like Alec Thomas wreck him in the playoffs. So, like, I really didn't want to answer the question at that time. And lo and behold, the Orioles end up signing him. Uh, so, I forget who answered that question, but shout out to you. Uh, you nailed it. Um, like, I think it was a solid signing. Like, I don't really have any issues either with the Orioles immediately saying that he's the team's closer. He's a bridge option. Hopefully, Batista's back in 2025. Hopefully, he's the same Felix Batista we saw last year. Maybe some new bionic arm is going to take him to another level. I don't know. But in the meantime, like, you need someone for the ninth inning. And I'm not giving that role to Yinier Cano next year like i have very little faith that he's going to be able to repeat that all-star performance from last year like he can still be good he can still be effective i still love having him in this bullpen but i don't want him taking the ball in the ninth inning with a one-run lead all year long um you know you can start with the year with this veteran closer who's been doing this for what almost 15 years now in the big leagues and yeah some nights are going to be wild but like that's that's baseball uh with these guys i just i like the swing and miss like 98th percentile and strikeout rate 90th percentile and whiff rate now you're putting him in a ballpark that's more friendly to pitchers you're putting him in front of a better defense i think he's going to be effective for this team and you look at the baseball savant page and you see you do see some of the the dark blue the bad blue when you're looking up that page like the exit velo hard hit percentage barrel percentage he seems to get hit hard but i just think you got to put those numbers in kind of bigger context when you're looking at a reliever who opponents are hitting like a buck 80 off of. They're not making much contact off of him. So yeah, when they do, maybe it's hard hit, but you got to touch him first. And based on the swing and miss stuff, people aren't touching him that often. So, you know, he's, he's a stable force right now. If he hits a bump in the road at any point, we know the Orioles will ride the hot hand. There are a ton of good options in this bullpen. We know they're going to find some gym on the waiver wire. They always seem to. Um, I, I like it for right now he helped shore up this bullpen i think it's an area that had a lot of questions going into next year so this this kind of helps that a little bit yeah nick i remember that episode you're talking about i think it was justin that submitted that question and sorry if i have that wrong but uh, i remember at the time i was not really enthusiastic about it just because kimbrell as i pointed out in the intro there and as we've all three talked about now has had his ups and downs and when things are bad for kimbrell they are really bad um, and my thought at that point was, well, you have David Robertson out there as well. That's another veteran guy where maybe the upside isn't the same, but the results are a little bit steadier. But as I pick the two apart a little bit further, which I have since the Orioles signed Kimbrell, Robertson really melted down after he went to the Marlins last year, did not pitch well at all, whereas Kimbrell was pretty solid throughout the regular season. And at this point, as a stuff-to-stuff comparison, there's no question that Craig Kimbrell – is the better pitcher. Now, maybe Robertson's results over the course of a full season will match Kimbrell, but Kimbrell does give you the higher upside play. And I do think that if he goes out and you're seeing more of the bad Craig Kimbrell early on, and then you're seeing the good, the Orioles aren't going to hesitate to switch him out. If they feel like there's someone in the back end of that bullpen that can do a better job, or that there's multiple options to possibly complement Kimbrell, in that back-end role. I don't think they're going to hesitate to switch him out just because they signed him as a free agent this offseason. And to give a little bit more context on the the contract for Kimbrell, it was a one, it's a $13 million guarantee, which will come out to $12 million in 2024 with a buyout of $1 million on a $13 million option for 2025. So this either could turn into a two-year $25 million contract if he if that option is picked up or a one-year $13 million deal if the Orioles decline that option 
Obviously, we'll have to see how things play out, but I'll throw this question out to both of you, starting with Nick. Where does the offseason go from here for the Orioles? Mm, the million-dollar question. Hopefully, multi-million-dollar question. Uh, multi-year, multi-million-dollar question. Um, hopefully, it's some sort of trade. I don't. I'm assuming we're kind of waiting for more chips to fall for before we start seeing more of the bigger trades. You know, Yamamoto and, and some other free agent pitchers still out, still roaming out there. I don't know. Listening to more and more things and reading more articles and stuff this past week or so, I feel like I'm becoming more and more in the minority and thinking that like DL Hall should just be in the bullpen next year. Like I, of course, I want to see him succeed. And if the Orioles think he can still be a rotation, he has rotation potential, then I'm not going to sit here and question them. Give him one final chance. But I don't think that leash should be a very long leash if they let him try to claim a spot in the rotation next year. I think having Crit Kimbrell, Yinir Cano, Ciano Perez, Tyler Wells, and Deal Hall in this bullpen, among some other names, but you know, you got a core there. I really love that bullpen. I think it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, Tyler Wells has been great as a starter and a reliever, but he's hit a wall two years in a row, row now, and he's pushing 30 at this point. So I know he doesn't have a ton of mileage on the arm. He's not you know, a 30-year-old who's been in a major league rotation for the last six, seven years, throwing 150 to 200 innings a year. But at the same time, like I mean, he's not a young chicken anymore. So I just think that you have Wells and Hall in the bullpen with these guys you already got. I love the bullpen. Now you've got Bradish, you've got Grayson, you've got John Means, you've got Dean Kramer, you've got a collection of guys competing for the fifth spot. You need to shore up the rotation. I'd like to see them go out and sign. We talked about the other week a Lucas Giolito or Lucas Giolito at the back end of the rotation. I wouldn't mind seeing that, although those options are now starting to come off the board here fairly quickly. It seems like the Royals are trying to grab up all of these guys uh, right now, but I'd like to see the Orioles go after one of those types of arms to shore up the back end of the rotation. And then as more of the chips fall, then maybe we see the trade with whoever it is, Seattle, ideally Seattle, maybe it is Cease, the White Sox finally crack and Cease comes to town. But then you've got Rodriguez, you've got Bradish, you've got the trade acquisition, you've got Means, you've got this Giolito or Giolito type free agent to fill out the rotation. And then you can have Dean Kramer, Cole Irvin, Deal Hall all in the mix there. I I don't know. I, maybe I'm too optimistic, but if that's how this thing shakes out, I really, really love this pitching staff going into 2025. Yeah, and it's already a pitching staff that had a ton of success last year, and the only person we really <laughs> lost was uh, Kyle Gibson, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, I, I don't understand. You know, I get it that fans are like, oh, typical Orioles offseason, nothing going on. But it's not, I don't know, any team. I feel like 25 out of the 30 teams are most, you can look at their offseason and be like, oh, nothing's happened yet. Well, it's very early in the offseason. The baseball offseason drags on into late January, early February. I feel like the Orioles are going to do something in January. I would love to sign Shoto Imanaga. I want that left-handed pitcher uh, from Japan and get him in here. I don't know if he's going to be in the Orioles uh, budget. Maybe if there's a change in ownership before uh, the offseason ends. No. Um, But I do think there will be that trade. I think you got to. It's just got to. The cards have to play out. You got to get Yamamoto signed. You got to get Blake Snell signed. And then I feel like once these pitching staffs can be placed together, then the Orioles can have a better idea of who to trade and for whom. And I think they'll sign a a pitcher. I think they'll trade for a pitcher. And I think you'll see some combination of uh, Austin Hayes, Ramon Urias, Kyle Stowers, Dean Kramer, just, you know, that bunch of guys that are kind of, you know, either – getting uh, past their prime with young guys coming up behind them or guys who don't have much of a opportunity here anymore. I think there'll be some combination of at least a couple of those guys traded for another bullpen arm, maybe not one as established as Craig Kimbrell or some big name Devin Williams type, but just a guy who you can bring in and feel confident with. And Dylan Tate is seemingly healthy. So you can't count on him, but hopefully he is uh, able to at least pitch in 2024. And if he can pitch like he did in 2022, then should be helpful as well. 
the trade market is moving really slow right now. I, you know, from all of the rumor mill leading up to the winter meetings, it seemed like at least someone was going to go. And you look now, Corbin Burns has not moved. Saying Bieber hasn't moved. Dylan Cease hasn't moved. Tyler Glass now hasn't moved. Although there's some traction as we're recording this, and maybe he's going to the Dodgers. We'll have to see how things play out. But the offseason's far from over if you're looking at that part of the hot stove. The pitching market on the for trades has not really moved uh, here in the last few weeks. So there's still plenty of time for the Orioles. We'll see what they do in terms of free agency. I don't know how much they're going to go out um, and add in that area. I do think they add at least one more reliever, but I wouldn't be shocked if it's through a series of three or four waiver claims where they hope that one of those guys sticks in spring training or that it's a reliever who flies under the radar that is maybe part of that trade for a starter, someone who's cost-controlled, doesn't have a lot of major league experience, but pitch data-wise fits the Orioles' model and they want to see what they can do with him. I don't have a specific name in mind for that, full disclosure, but I do think that could be a possibility. It wouldn't necessarily be dipping into the free agent market again to get a setup man or a you know mid-innings reliever. We need Blake Snell to go back home, go back home to Seattle. Well, he was just at a Seahawks game the other night, the Sunday night or Monday night game they had, and the 12th man or whatever Seahawky thing they do out there. But like, go home to Seattle. And then, you know what, Jerry DePoto, let's talk. Uh, because you bring in Blake Snell, you got a ton of pitching and you don't have very many high-quality bats. You got to surround Julio Rodriguez with somebody. Uh, let's make that deal with Seattle once Blake Snell goes back home. Give me Brian Wu. Give me, give me literally <laughs> literally whoever. I don't care which which guy in that rotation it is. Give me any of them. Uh, and let's, uh, let's have some fun in 2025. I don't know. Or get Tariq Skubal and Jason Foley from the Tigers. And that might cost us quite a bit, but I mean, you know, there's always options out there, exciting and otherwise. Yeah, Brian Wu would be fantastic. Imanaga and Brian Wu call it a day. We're good. It's just it's it's not gonna be. I know a lot of people like want Burns, right? I rather have Peralta to be completely honest. Um, it's I, they're not gonna trade. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to trade for the guy with one year. Elias, I, I feel like, is ready to pull that trigger and trade some prospects for pitching. But I feel like he's got to work some of these teams down a little bit from their asking price because he's not trading Jackson Holiday. I don't think he wants to trade Kobe May or Samuel Basayo. I'm not saying they're untouchable, but I think he would obviously. There's, <laughs> there's so much depth in this system. You can pull off a package uh, for pretty much anybody without trading away one of your top three guys but yeah it's the tricky part is they want somebody with multiple years of control which i'm fine with waiting this out like elias said the trades don't have to happen at the winter meetings they don't have to happen before christmas there's no specific deadline these are ongoing discussions but i, I do like the fact that it seems like they're going to be holding out for that guy with multiple years of control instead of the rental i i'm fine with without the rental right now let me throw this out there to the two of you um, before we move on to our next topic. How would either of you feel about a scenario where the Orioles decide we don't like the way the trade market's playing out rather than go out and get that top tier guy. We're going to sign a couple of free agent starters to one year deals and guys like in the Michael Lorenzen tier of pitching, let's say. And if we're in the hunt in July, that's when we go out and we make the move. We bank on, let's say the White Sox or another team, the White Sox or the Brewers, or another team that has a surplus of pitching right now losing their leverage? I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't freak out. I know a lot of Orioles fans would. Uh, I would not. I mean, I wouldn't want Michael Lorenzen specifically, but I know what you're saying, just guys that are, you know, bounce back candidates or a guy you can get for relatively cheap, at least as far as commitment goes with one year. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather do that than trade a Kobe Mayo or Samuel Basayo or or even multiple guys who aren't even in the top three for one year of Corbin Burns. I don't think, you know, if you're going to get a guy this for one year, I'd rather not lose some guys that would be under team control for six or seven years potentially. So I, I wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't love it, but I I could. Uh, I could see the defense of it. 
Yeah, you know that's what's going to happen, though. Uh, at this point, now that you brought this out there, uh, that's exactly what's going to happen. And Orioles fans are going to lose their minds. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'd be enthusiastic just because, like, we do need to take another step as far as pitching is concerned. That was clearly a major issue in the playoffs. Granted, like, it was Rodriguez's first playoff start. I'm not knocking him. I'm not going to knock Dean Kramer, considering everything else that was going on at the time of that start as well. So, but, you know, is John, how healthy is John Means? Like, how much are we going to get out of John Means next year? Is Dean Kramer, I mean, I, I love the guy. He's, I feel like over the course of a full season, Dean Kramer is going to give you more good starts than bad starts. When it's bad, it's going to be bad. But I feel like in the long run, he comes out on the positive. But like, I don't, I, I know I just said like throw that flat, that last playoff shot out the window. It's it's irrelevant. I think moving forward, though, I don't know if I feel confident in giving Dean Kramer a ball in a must-win playoff game. Uh, so I, I do think you still at least need to. I, I still want to see like proven options that do take this rotation a step forward at some point, but. You can sit there and say, we tried to make the trade. We tried to make the trade. Maybe it does happen at the trade deadline and all is forgiven. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. It seems like some of these AL, other AL East teams are really focusing on improving their lineups. So I think it's imperative that the Orioles kind of counter that and say, we need to improve our pitching if we want to stay in contention for 162 game season against some of these lineups that we're going to be facing multiple times a year. We'll go now to an unexpectedly quiet part of the winter meetings for the Orioles, and that was the Rule 5 draft. The Orioles did not lose or select a player in the Major League phase of the Rule 5 draft, which was surprising because they've had a long track record of taking players in the Major League phase. It actually stretches back to Dan Duquette, Michael Elias' predecessor as general manager with the team. And they left several notable prospects unprotected before the Rule 5 draft, including outfielder Hudson Haskin, who was getting some buzz nationally as a player that could be on the radars of other teams, yet he was not chosen by another club. Meanwhile, in the minor league phase, the Orioles selected pitcher Nelvis Ochoa from the Colorado Rockies and lost right-hander Connor Gillespie to the Cleveland Guardians. Gillespie pitched last season at A Bowie, generally had solid numbers throwing 115 and two-thirds innings pitched with a 3.89 ERA and a 4.33 FIP. But the Orioles do have a good bit of pitching depth at the AA and AAA levels, theoretically sustain that loss. Ochoa, meanwhile, pitched last year in the Dominican Summer League for the Rockies, throwing 34 and two-thirds innings with 37 strikeouts and a 3.92 FIP. So, Nick, I'll start with you here. Quiet Rule 5 draft, uh, the quietest one we've seen in several years here in Baltimore. What are your thoughts on the Orioles, one, not losing or picking anybody in the major league phase, and then the little bit of activity we saw in the minor league phase? I think this tells you that this minor league system is overrated, right? Like, this, these guys aren't that good. Nobody wanted them. Uh, no, I don't know if anybody even jokingly said that on Twitter or not, but uh, I could see somebody saying that. Um, no, I kind of – I didn't see any of these guys getting selected, even Hudson Haskin. Just because you're relying on a guy, it was quite not just for the Orioles, for everybody. This was like only what ten picks in the major league phase. But I just think if you draft Hudson Haskin, it's a, first of all, it's a lot easier to hide the pitchers. You hide the reliever, you send him out for you know to get that final out of an inning. He doesn't have to face three guys. He closed out the inning. You can take him out of the game. Uh, you can still hide these guys and work them in pretty slowly. But hitters, if you're going to draft an outfielder, like you're going to need them to be. A defensive replacement you're gonna need, they need them to add value on the base paths or something i didn't see a team willing to take a guy with multiple hamstring issues last year and hip surgery that ended the year like that's i think those are a lot of big red flags and not to say haskin is like a bad prospect anymore at this point i still think he's a fine prospect i do think the injury concerns are pretty valid with him and like i i'm kind of knocking him down my personal list i think a little bit moving ahead to next year but at the same time, like I just didn't see any team trying to take these guys. Um, as far as the Orioles lost, like Gillespie, good story. And the fact of funny, the funny story, like he what the first three years he only pitched for Aberdeen. It was Aberdeen's short season in 2019, and then no 2020, and then 2021 he's back in Aberdeen. 
because they're the high affiliate 2022. He's back in Aberdeen again. And then he finally gets out of Aberdeen for the first time in his career and has actually a really good year with Bowie. But yeah, you talk about what his upside is. I don't think it was super high, obviously. He's a local kid. He went to high school right down the road from where I live now. So, and then went to VCU. So shout out to the local kid. But I don't think as far as like prospect status or anything, the Orioles lost much there. I do like Ochoa. I love the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft, honestly, the most, just because it's a chance to add, you know, your Ignacio Felizes in these guys. And yeah, they don't pan out. I think one of the guys last year, Alfred Vega, has already been cut <laughs> at the end of the season. So, like, yeah, these guys aren't going to – they're left unprotected in the minor league phase for many reasons. But Ochoa, like, he was signed by the Rockies in 2019, back when that was, what, the, the J2 signing period. So he was signed over the summer. So he wasn't – supposed to make his pro debut in the DSL until 2020, which there was no DSL season in 2020. So he didn't get his career start until 2021 pitching the DSL doesn't pitch in 2022. I don't know if you guys looked this up or not. I didn't see anything. I'm he missed the whole year. I'm assuming due to some kind of injury, Tommy John or what, I don't know, but he didn't pitch in 2022, 2023 is back in the DSL. He's still only like 20 years old. So you can stick him down in the FCL in Sarasota to begin the year and see what he does. And maybe this was a guy who was on Kobe Perez's uh, list back in 2019 for that first international class under Perez. And now you got an opportunity. You really liked him then when you scouted him. He's still 20 years old, still plenty of time to develop him. And maybe they really liked his stuff. And now they get a chance to see what they can do with him. It's another fun name for us to follow. And hopefully we get to see him in Delmarva at, at some point next year. Yeah, that is also my favorite part of the Rule 5 is the minor league phase. I mean, usually when you lose a guy, it's like no big deal. But for some reason, when you get a guy, it's like, hey, we could have control of this guy for X amount of years. Like we can actually develop this person. Um, and especially when you trust the player development system in place like we do with the Orioles right now, it's like, okay, interesting. That's why I was excited. And I'm pretty sure we all were for for Mr. Vega, this coming season didn't work out, but it was worth a shot. And same thing with this guy, Connor Gillespie. The I'll never forget him just because someone my wife works with grew up with him. So I kind of, I don't know, there was like that weird sideways connection thing. But yeah, I mean, he was a solid player, but a solid pitcher, especially. I still think he could, you know, potentially do something in the major leagues at some point, but I have my roster predictions uh, written out for, you know, all the minor leagues for 2024 early getting a head start on that. I have like 20 pitchers written down for double a, and he wasn't even one of them just because I'm like, I can't just keep putting people on here. The depth at that part of the system is just extreme. So I don't, you know, nothing against him. I just don't think it's going to be much of a loss there. And I did think the Orioles would lose someone in the major league portion. I didn't think it would be Hudson Haskins, and I couldn't tell you specifically who I thought it would be. I just thought one of the pitchers might go, you know, whether it was Gene Pinto or um, why am I just forgetting the guy we got from the Pirates last minor league rule five that we also thought would be protected on the 40 man, but him or uh, Lego. Yes, Trey Miguel or Kyle Bronovich or Zach Peek or someone. I just thought someone, one of the pitchers could go. Like Because like Nick said, that's the easiest place to hide somebody. I saw Miguel and Garrett Stallings as the wild cards. And the only reason Stallings was on my radar was that a team drafting him knew that they were would know that they were getting somebody who has a track record of durability and could give them innings at the back of the rotation or in a balk relief role. But then when we had Vivek on and we were looking at his spreadsheet a few weeks ago, I thought yeah, there's some guys in here that have really good stuff that were left unprotected that I would put ahead of my list, you know, put them in, ahead of Stallings, Mago, Gene Pinto, Ryan Watson on my list. I'm not as sure now that a player is going to get chosen unless it's an organization that has had their eye on that specific pitcher for a while. So as the Rule 5 draft came up and it went through without a pitcher being taken, I was not surprised at that point. But after the Orioles initially left some of those guys unprotected, I thought one of them would go. But I do think it creates in the Orioles system, 
heading into next season, you are going to have a little bit of that backfill that we saw last year where some guys who statistically looked like they deserved the bump up to the next level. And the two names that come to mind were Justin Armbruster and Gene Pinto. I thought Armbruster could have started at Norfolk. Pinto had a decent case for starting at Bowie. Both of those guys repeated levels they had ended 2022 at and then advanced a little bit later in the year. I would expect that that's going to happen again, where you have some pitchers that are forced to be a level lower than they otherwise would be because between adding to the major league roster and carrying some of the surplus depth that you had last year into 2024, not everyone can move up. Yeah, it's obviously the big focus is a crowded outfield situation and a crowded infield situation in this system, especially in the upper levels of the minor leagues. But I think what goes severely overlooked is the log jam for innings, especially in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I, I think that's going to be really difficult to find spots for all these guys and for a lot of these guys to get the innings that, that they deserve. You know, you can only use so many starters, even if you do the piggyback option that, you know, especially in Bowie, you, you know, you had Alex Pham and Gene Pinto piggybacking together. The Orioles do that a lot down in the minor leagues, but even doing that, you still got a log jam and, you know, trying to figure out what these rosters look like in a couple of months and, who gets what innings, it's not going to be an easy task this year. Yep, 100%. We'll wrap up kind of by taking a look at the American League East as a whole because things have been busy. The Yankees acquired Juan Soto in a deal from the San Diego Padres. Meanwhile, you have the Rays reportedly shopping Tyler Glass now, possibly Randy Arena. There have been reports of the Dodgers and talks of the Rays about Glass now as well as Manuel Margot as a possible pickup. And then the expectation coming into this offseason, but we haven't seen it just yet, is that the Red Sox were going to spend to try to improve their major league roster. So it looks like at this point, every team in the American League East is going about it a different way. Toronto reportedly took a big swing and got somewhat close on Sohei Otani, but didn't sign him. Um, the Rays, meanwhile, probably selling some of their major league roster, but They'll do it the way they always do it, which is that they'll still have enough depth there to be competitive. So, Bob, I'll start with you as in this final segment of the show. What do you see as the state of the American League East right now? I don't know yet. It's it's very weird. I was definitely glad that Shohei Otani did not sign with the Blue Jays. Uh, I thought that was fun to watch those fans freak out uh, this past Saturday, uh, get excited and then have their da dashes or hopes dashed, I should say. And uh, now they're going to boo him every time he's up to bat, which whatever. Um, it sucks that Juan Soto is on the Yankees, but I love that the Yankees lost so much of their pitching depth. Um, they are just constantly getting rid of really solid pitching options for these short-term solutions like they did it last year with the trade with Oakland for Frankie Montas, or maybe that was even two years ago, but um, I just love to see that. Hopefully Juan Soto does not sign an extension with the Yankees. He is a Boris client, so it'll at least be up for bid for the free agent. We know he'll, he'll go on the open market, whether he goes back to New York or not, hopefully not, but he will be incredible for them. Just hopefully between him and judge one is injured and, one gets pitched around. I don't know. Uh, the Red Sox, who the heck knows what they're doing. Um, the Blue Jays, I think I saw that uh, either Bo Bichette or Vladimir Guerrero could be traded this offseason, especially if they would have landed Otani. I guess if they sign another super high price free agent, that could be the case. Um, I, I just They don't scare me for some reason. Tampa Bay, they'll probably be like the team that they get rid of a Rosarena, Glasnow, um, that the third baseman that I think is also on the block, they'll lose like half their team and still be one of the best teams in the, in the division next year, just based off of junior Caminero and just such a, just really solid fundamentally organization that they are with guys constantly coming up. Um, so yeah, um, unless the Yankees get Yamamoto and, make some other moves. I, I'm just not scared of any team in specific as far as the Orioles are concerned, contending for the division again. But yeah, there's still plenty of ways to go where, you know, the Yankees could get Yamamoto, the Blue Jays could, I don't know, trade for some awesome player. Uh, the Red Sox could 
what the Red Sox are weird. Uh, I have just no idea what is going on in Boston, and I love to see it. But uh, no, uh, it's interesting. But I, I'm I'm not scared of any other team in the East. I'm glad you said that because I I do have thoughts on some of these teams, and especially like I'm already doing like fantasy baseball, baseball drafts for next year, and so diving into some of these teams. It's, it's interesting because I'm actually drafting a lot of Red Sox players uh, right now, but I do agree. It's like this lineup is fun down there in Boston. I think it could be kind of an under-the-radar sneaky lineup that kind of like annoys the hell out of you every single time you play them, like Jaron Duran, Devers, Tristan Casas, a healthy Trevor Story, Yoshida, Tyler O'Neill <laughs> they just got. like I do like this lineup a lot, but that pitching staff is still led by Chris Sale and Nick Pavetta and Brian Bello, and like that's trash. They're not leading anybody to an AL East title. Chris Sale is, is not going to stay healthy. Uh, New York, I'm not afraid of the Juan Soto signing as far as like changing the fortune of this team. Like He should put up massive numbers at Yankee Stadium. That does stink. But I think the Padres made out pretty well in that deal, all things considered. And I think they pulled AJ Preller. AJ Preller can't trade at the deadline. He fails miserably at the deadline. But offseason AJ Preller, I think, is a mastermind, to be honest. He pulled that trade off at the right time because now Juan Soto has watched uh, Otani go out there on the market and get his deal. Not saying Soto's going to get $700 million, but. I don't think the Yankees are going to get Soto again next year. Um, we know Stanton's going to be on the IL multiple times. Alex Verdugo doesn't strike fear. He's a fine player, but he's not like going to change the game for you. For me, with the Yankees, it's the pitching. Like You're going to have to get Garrett Cole to repeat his Cy Young performance again this year. And can you really rely on Carlos Rodon and Nestor Cortez being healthy for you all year? I don't know what the odds are of them staying healthy all year, but like I'm taking the under. And they were wrecked. Between the Soto trade, the Rule 5 draft, they have no depth whatsoever in terms of pitching. So not scared of them. The Blue Jays, like if Alec Manoa regains his form, I that rotation is deep and solid. Uh, actually, really, really good rotation. But after Springer, Bichette, and Vladdy, like, Who's the next best hitter on Toronto? Like Dalton Varsho, maybe, who hit like 220-something last year. Not too scared about Toronto, but clearly they are going to be very aggressive over these last couple weeks of the offseason. And with the Rays, like, like we all joke, it's the Rays. It doesn't matter what happens. They're going to do Rays things and come out on top and claw their way to the top of the AL East. But I just I don't see it this year. And depends on what these moves are. But like Wanda Franco isn't coming back. Hopefully he's never coming back to a major league lineup. They're going to move Randy Rosarena, it seems like, with Tyler Glass now. I, I grew up right next door to Brandon Lau. My dad coached him in Little League. I will sing the praises of Brandon Lau until he retires, but his health is a major issue. And on the mound, if you train away Tyler Glass now, like you got a lot of guys that are coming off Tommy John surgery or going to miss the year due to Tommy John surgery. Some of them, their second Tommy John surgery. I just don't see where they're going to get innings from this year. So... Yeah, maybe I'm just being overly critical of these teams in the AL East, but I think the Orioles have the, still have the most complete roster as is right now. To be honest, with the Soto deal, I'm more interested in the implications beyond 2024 because if the Yankees don't do much else this offseason, which is a possibility, if they don't get Yamamoto, uh, I don't really know there's a lot of room for them to upgrade because they have moved a lot of pitching depth and lost a lot of pitching depth between the Soto trade and the Rule 5 draft. So the ability for them to go out and make a trade, um, unless it's a salary dump, is not great. So that doesn't really scare me a whole lot if they don't add anything else other than Juan Soto this offseason because that's an older team with some clear flaws in its roster. And if Soto goes there and has a good year, but they don't make the playoffs, does that increase the chance that he's not back there next year? But I know I'm getting really far ahead of myself, but nonetheless, that's really more what I'm interested in right now. And I thought the Padres did well in that trade under the circumstances. I agree with you, Nick. They were not dealing from a position of strength whatsoever and still came out pretty well. And I was a little confused why the Yankees would move Michael King in that trade 
when that looked like a guy who was going to offset some of the questions about their rotation, he was really good for them last year as both a reliever and a starter. And I thought that going into 2024, he could be the guy that they maybe put into the middle of their rotation and got good results from. Um, as for the Blue Jays and the Red Sox, we have to wait and see. I think the Blue Jays overcorrected last year in their attempt to become a better defensive team, maybe sacrificed too much offense in the process, and they're running out of room in terms of making a major position player upgrade. And the Red Sox, I fully agree with you, Nick. If they come back with that rotation, the best they can hope for is that they have an 86-win season where they outslug a lot of teams and maybe get the third card, third wild card spot. That's probably their ceiling. So I'm not sitting here saying that I think the Orioles are a lock to win the AL East if things stay the way they are right now because they're not at all. But I'm not seeing a team that really scares me. No. And the Orioles, I think, just have the – you look at the rest – as the roster stand right now on December 13th, the Orioles also have, like, very clearly the highest ceiling among any other team in this division. Like what if Colton Kowser comes out, makes this squad and takes a step forward? What if Heston Kerstad's a 30, 35 home run guy next year? Like Jackson holiday. I don't have to say anything else. Jackson freaking holiday. What if Kobe Mayo becomes a piece? I know everybody wants to trade every right-handed hitting prospect in the system, but righties can hit at Camden yards. Still, it is physically possible for righties to have success at Camden yards. Um, like, and Grayson, Grayson Rodriguez, man. What if, what kind of, if he takes a Kyle Bradish leap next year, good Lord. Like that's, that's asking a whole lot there. I get that, but I just, I love the ceiling of this team. I don't think any other team in this division could compete with that. September call up Samuel Basayo, um, Joey Ortiz, just def- the, the new Jorge Mateo late inning defensive replacement with a little bit of a pop there. Yeah. I mean, Again, we are an Orioles podcast. We know the system inside and out. But, yeah, we have easily the highest upside. Um, You know, the Yankees have to hope Carlos Rodon bounces back, who they just signed to some massive deal. They have to hope no one gets hurt. Uh, Just imagine if Garrett Cole got injured. Um, Unless they sign Yamamoto and acquire two other pitchers somehow, I just – yeah, the the pitching, I don't – I don't understand the strategy there. Hopefully Brian Cashman remains the GM of the New York Yankees for a very long time. Uh, I love what he's doing. Um, But yeah, I think, yeah, like Zach saying, I don't think the Orioles are like maybe not even the betting favorites to win the AL East uh, going into the year. We don't have like the sexiest roster overall, um, but we do have the highest upside. And I still think there's room where by the time opening day rolls around, we could be the betting favorite or at least second uh, best odds to win the division. And anyway, we work better as underdogs, so it's fine. Yeah. It, it's going to be the Yankees, I feel like. I don't know if they're already odds out right now. I'm sure they are on some book, but I would imagine it's probably easily the Yankees as favorites to win the AL East next year, which does seem right in the beginning. But yeah, like like Zach said, it's also in such an old roster. Stanton, uh, DJ LeMahieu, like th- it's an old group. Like, I actually kind of do like Anthony Volpe when I take a step back and look at him, uh, not in a Yankees uniform, but at the same time, they got some good young pieces. But at the same time, like Jason Dominguez, I don't know what he's gonna be able to do next year. Didn't he have like UCL damage or something? Like, the Yankees are definitely scary in a sense, but yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely gonna be not an easy division. It's going to be continue to be one of the toughest divisions in baseball. But again, I just think this Orioles team, despite what some people may think, I think they're the most complete team in this division still as of right now. I'm not going to lie. If the Blue Jays would have uh, signed Shohei Otani this past weekend, I might be singing a different tune just because it would have been like, okay, the all season starts Juan Soto to the Yankees, Otani to the Blue Jays. That would have been like, Oh shit. But, uh, Yeah, luckily that didn't happen. So I can still feel a little bit optimistic right now. Certainly have a lot of offseason to go, but for now, feeling pretty good about where the roster stands here at Orioles on the Birds, and that does it for this week. We will be back next week, and we'll have some mailbag questions from our listeners as well as some other topics to get into. In the meantime, you can check us out on X, Facebook, Instagram, 
and TikTok. And while you're browsing around the internet, be sure to check out the other podcasts on the Believe Network. For Bob Phil and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to Orioles on the Birds. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.